This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Black Agenda Report, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Pakman Show, The Progressive Magazine, and Citizen Radio. And a note on today's episode that if you just remember that prison inmates aren't actually humans with mothers and families and whatnot, then it's a lot easier to hear about how we treat them. Aryan Brotherhood, totally out of control, it appears based on some recent crimes and based on some reporting from inside the prisons. Now, everybody knows the Aryan Brotherhood exists already, right? But they had not been this active in going after government officials in the outside world at this level ever before. So what are we talking about here? Well, recently, Texas District Attorney Mike McClellan and his wife were killed. And just as I was coming on air, there's a new report released that Mike McClellan was shot 20 times. So that is an execution, no question about it. Same people who did the shootings only shot his wife once. So clearly sending a message. Former Texas District Attorney Mark Haas was killed um, just under three months ago, working on the same cases, indicting the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas. Now in Colorado, a different group uh, apparently targeted the prison chief, Tom Clements. Knocked on his door, he answers his door, they shoot him dead. Now that guy we know about, because uh, he was later uh, in a shootout and was killed as well, and uh, that's part of, part of the uh, Colorado um, 211 group. That's also an Aryan group in, in the Colorado prisons. So now we have an inside source uh, from the prisons that wrote a piece for the Daily Beast, and he has a very interesting perspective on this. He says, for example, four people have been killed since the beginning of the year in a series of shootings that appear to be connected to the homegrown jihadists of the Aryan Brotherhood. Jihadists! And they are apparently coming. Now, before I give you more details of what the source inside the prison says, get a load of this right before we came on air. And I've never seen this in America. A prosecutor just quit an Aryan Brotherhood case because of security concerns. And it's in Texas. U.S. Attorney Jay Hilleman saying, uh, sent out an email to the defense attorney saying, short one saying, because of security concerns, I will no longer be part of this case. That's basically U.S. prosecutors saying no moss. In a, that's unbelievable. By the way, just quick note, think what would happen if it was Muslim jihadis. We would be on terror alert 39. Whatever the maximum is, we'd go 20 above it. If they killed four people, involved government officials, DAs, prison officials, if Muslims had done it, oh my God, the whole country would be on fire, but we should be on fire. I can't believe they're killing government officials. And it appears, allegedly, that it's the Aryan Brotherhood. So now, more from inside the present. America's harsh judicial system, coupled with their growing national affinity for utilizing complete isolation in the supermax prisons as a corrections tactic of first choice in many cases turns men into monsters this is really interesting now there's a couple of different factors at play yesterday on the current show on the young turks we had mark potok from southern poverty law center and he said a very ironic thing happened decades ago when we desegregated the prisons it created more racial gangs including the aryan brotherhood if you're white and you went to prison, well, if you didn't have protection, you were in trouble. It led people more into the Aryan Brotherhood. So they go to prison, and they're more likely to become radicalized, and then at some point, 
they get out of prison. And the guys in prison are running huge crime organizations, selling drugs. Apparently, meth is the number one thing that they are selling. And then so when Texas, working with federal prosecutors, indicted 34 of these Aryan Brotherhoods of Texas guys, oh, that's when all of a sudden hell broke loose. Now a lot of them are out of jail. And the second factor is what this former prisoner is talking about. Inside our jail, we are so harsh, so draconian, that we're basically creating monsters and then releasing them into the world. More from that former prisoner. Many of the first men locked up when our nation embarked on a policy for for-profit mass incarceration near the end of the last century are now returning into society. And as predicted by numerous professionals, they are sicker and more dangerous than when they went behind bars. This is a recipe for disaster. Today, again, on the current show, I was talking to a representative, state representative from New Hampshire. He made a terrific point. They're trying to block privatized prisons in New Hampshire. And he said, think about the incentives. He said, now in a public prison, you theoretically want to do some rehabilitation. Now, that's been a, a theory and not put into practice a lot here in the U.S. That's another part of the problem. But inside the private prisons, they actually have a financial motivation to make sure that those people are so bad that they come back into prison so that that private prison can make more money. You think they're going to do rehabilitation? Or they're incentivized to create monsters that then are, again, released into the world, commit more crimes, and come back into their private prisons? More. The fear among law enforcement is, or at least should be, is that now we have dozens upon dozens, if not hundreds, who knows, maybe even thousands, of murderous chickens finally coming home to roost. Damn. And we're seeing it today. And as I said, unbelievably, some DAs are now saying, I got no interest in those chickens, and I'm running for the hills. I've seen this happen in other countries. You had lethal drug gangs in Mexico. This is a different situation, and it's now happening here. And these are Aryan Brotherhood guys, apparently, that are behind it. We got to get incredibly serious about this problem. By the way, one last final insult to injury when president obama first took office uh, there was a homeland security report that said white supremacist groups huge problem for domestic terrorism right-wing talk show hosts like rush limbaugh the fox news guys went ballistic how dare you how dare you talk about right-wing groups and possibly white supremacists no you take that other report and of course what did president obama do as usual yes sir absolutely sir we're down to one person in Department of Homeland Security because of an overreaction to what Fox News, Rush Limbaugh said. They knocked down the department to one person tracking white supremacist extremists that are doing this kind of violence. How's that working out for us? There are some phrases 
mostly referring or belonging to government, which frequently mean the opposite of what they say, or which are shorthand for entire libraries of lies promoted by the powerful to turn reality upon its head. Terms like military intelligence, public charter school, public-private partnership, extraordinary rendition, congressional oversight, and humanitarian intervention are among the ones that come readily to mind. We take this moment to focus on a current favorite phrase often deployed by our masters of deceit to conceal their official crimes. That phrase is the worst of the worst. Official spokespeople and corporate media apply this term to those unjustly confined for torture and indefinite sentence with no trial or formal charges like those at Guantanamo, Bagram, Diego Garcia, and an archipelago of known and unknown prisons and surrogate facilities. It's been shown again and again that the so-called worst of the worst in such places are often completely innocent and sometimes include children, no matter. The worst of the worst label is an open invitation to invent even more lies, to dismiss their lives, their families, and the rules of international law and human decency in their cases. One of the signal policy innovations of the Obama administration over the Bush-Cheney regime is said to be the simple murder of such persons with drones, rather than locking them up. The worst of the worst phrase is deployed by domestic officials as well, usually to refer to the United States' world-leading total of more than 70,000 persons in solitary confinement in thousands of federal, state, and local jails and prisons. It has become standard procedure across the country to place prisoners in solitary confinement for years for such offenses as refusing to confess an alleged gang affiliation engaging in anything that looks like unsanctioned self-help or self-improvement organizing, the possession of books that one's jailers disapprove of, having a history of political activism on the outside, or experiencing an awakening of political consciousness while a prisoner. The assertion of jailers that the 70,000 in solitary confinement on any day in the United States are the worst of the worst is nothing less than cynical doublespeak to conceal their own crimes. Solitary confinement, when prolonged for more than a few days, is recognized under international law as torture, and crimes are always doubly diabolical when committed by anyone on a public payroll. Hence, when we hear media spokespeople, military or civilian officials on any level refer to those in their dungeons and their gun sites at home and abroad as the worst of the worst, we should not let that stand. We should know, and we should let everyone in our reach know, that we and they are hearing the worst kind of calumny, designed to conceal official wrongs committed in all our names. It's our jailers and their official enablers, not our prisoners here and around the world, who are truly the worst of the worst. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Bruce Dixon. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. But that train keeps a-rolling, 
on down to San Antonio. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. How do we reform our prisons? And is it possible that conservatives can do this, or at least could take the lead on I wish they would. I really wish they would. Because, you know, Richard Vigory is right. Our, our prison system is broken. He says the solution lies not only inside prisons, but also with more effective community supervision systems using new technologies, drug tests, and counseling programs. Well, maybe these are the opportunities to make some money. We should also require ex-convicts to either hold a job or perform community service. There's lots of community service opportunities out there. You know, one of the problems that, but on the other hand, that's, that's like one of those throwaway lines. Consider about half of the people in our prison system right now are mentally ill or, or drug addicted, which is, you could argue, a form of mental illness. And really, they don't need a job. They don't need community service. They need treatment. And then when their, their addiction or their mental illness is under control, we can talk about a job or community service. But let's not just pretend that everybody who's in jail is, is like, you know, the, the, the person who works, you know, at the desk or cubicle or, or building next door to you or the, the, the clerk at the, at, the, at the local store. But, but uh, this community-based program, using free market and Christian principles, conservatives have an opportunity to put their beliefs into practice. We'll see. Color me skeptical, but hopeful. Okay? I'll just... Skeptical, but hopeful. Patricia, in Ettrick, Wisconsin. Hey, Patricia, you wanted to talk about privatizing prisons? Yes, hello. Hi. I know you're great, but you're going to get better. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm working. Um, I thought that Mr. Vigory had very little to say that we don't already know. I used to work for a halfway house for people coming out of prison, and of course it was a private, corporate-owned facility, mm. and their main goal was to keep their beds full. Right. And most people in prison, it's just in these corporate prisons, there shouldn't be such a thing as a corporate prison. Most of them are there because of drug charges that don't amount to a hill of beans. Mm -hmm. And it's just a waste of our taxpayer money. Right. So, um, and if there are going to be any private uh, halfway houses, for example, why not just simply require them to be not-for-profit organizations? Well, of course they won't make any money that I way. Know, I know that's my it? point. <laughs> but you know, the but then good people who want to, you know, who is somebody in the in the private sector who's not a government employee who feels a calling to work with prisoners or ex-prisoners. Uh, or has experience in that area, or was a prisoner themselves, or whatever, and, and who would like to start a halfway house can create a nonprofit organization to do, you know, to do that in in a way that that you know doesn't require um, you know government appropriation. You know, it seems like a reasonable um, thing. 
Well, I could tell you about as far as being non-profit goes, mm-hmm. there are ways of being profitable, but it says non-profit. Well, yeah, it's the it old pay the CEO $700,000 700, a year like the Red Cross did with right. Elizabeth Dole. That's what they do, and I mean, so why wouldn't a corporate prison want to start a corporate halfway house yeah. And then when they fail in the corporate halfway house, send them back to the corporate prison right. and make even more money. I'm happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine in a bag. I'm useless, but not for long. The future is coming on. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Uh, earlier this month, Mark Chiavarella, a 61-year-old former judge in Pennsylvania, was sentenced to almost 30 years in prison, literally for selling children for cash. What do I mean? He was accepting money kickbacks, okay, from private prison co- uh, companies for incarcerating thousands of adults and children into a facility that was owned by a developer that was giving them kickbacks under the table. Estimates are that he received over a million dollars in these kickbacks. And the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court actually had to go in, Lewis, and overturn about 4,000 convictions, which he issued over the period of uh, 2003 to 2008, because, hey, he violated the constitutional rights of those juveniles, including the right to legal counsel, the right to intelligently enter a plea, and some of the juveniles he sentenced for kickbacks, ladies and gentlemen, as young as 10 years old, literally selling children to prison, selling children to prison. This is just unbelievable. He was convicted of 12 counts, including racketeering, money laundering, mail fraud, and tax evasion. He has to pay back million in restitution. And this is, we've we've talked about private prisons on this show. We've talked about the prison industrial complex. And this is evidence that these private prisons are looking for profit by any means necessary. Let's put it all together for a second and step back. We have for-profit prisons which benefit from specific immigration policies, right? So they they can collect their daily incarceration fees for detaining undocumented immigrants. They then have big banks, as Christopher Petrella told us when he was on the show, buying stakes in these for-profit prison companies. Big banks are buying stakes in companies like CCR, Corrections Corporation of America, and others. So then the big banks are making money from the the detention of these undocumented immigrants. And then the big banks own shares in companies that are giving kickbacks to judges. So this is another way where we're connecting the big banks on Wall Street, Wall Street, right? We're connecting that to 
the legal system, right? The, the legal system is tied up in this dollarocracy. I really like that term. John Nichols and Bob McChesney use it in their new book. The dollarocracy where Wall Street banks and private prisons are exerting influence over the, the judicial system. I mean, this is, this is literally corporations influencing how long people are in prison. It's absolutely sickening. Right. And, uh, you know, like I said before, why stop here? We might as well privatize the judicial system. Right. Might as well. Let's just make it full circle. And if anybody believes this is the one judge in the country that this is happening with, what, what are the odds, right? I mean, me? is, is it, would, does it stand to reason, Natan, that just by sheer a numbers analysis, this is the one judge that's doing this? Uh, probably not, although it should make us feel a little better that he's getting 30 years in prison and will likely die in prison. Yeah, that's true. He is going to spend, uh, realistically, the, the rest of his life in prison. Philly is planning on shutting down 23 public schools, which is a complete and utter disaster. They're actually going to decrease the amount of public schools in Philly by 10%. And the reason why they're doing so is because, well, it turns out that they just don't have the money. Except they have $400 million to build a new penitentiary. Why don't they just take what the kids that were in the school and just put them right into the penitentiary, right? <laughs> just to make the system a little bit more efficient. I mean, I feel like that's what they're planning. The school-to-prison pipeline is no joke. It's, it's a real thing that you're seeing here in the U.S. right now, where kids, and usually minority kids, will get uh, suspended or expelled for stupid, nonviolent offenses, and then they'll go to juvenile detention centers. Um, now, we don't know if that's actually going to happen in this particular case, but again, you're shutting down 23 public schools, and you're using using $400 million to fund a prison. And by the way, this will be the second most expensive state project ever. Yeah, and but they don't have enough money. And my guess is they probably have money for tax cuts for the rich, though. They do. Oh, uh, really? Huh, interesting. Yes. So uh, Pennsylvania's GOP-controlled House of Representatives uh, recently passed a tax break for corporations that will cost the state an estimated 600 to $800 million annually. Now, come on, think about that. How can they possibly say they don't have enough money? They just wasted six to eight hundred million dollars. And you know what they say? Oh, no, 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 that attracts businesses. And it increases jobs and then increases revenue. That's their excuse all the time. Nonsense. Two quick examples, and I can give you a hundred of these. Chris Christie said, same exact thing in New Jersey. Oh, I'm going to increase jobs. That's why I'm giving him tax breaks. And then it turns out it didn't increase jobs. In fact, one of the companies cut a hundred jobs. Chris Christie's like, all right, well, your tax breaks, I'm going to cut them by like 12%. Okay, so you're still going to get tens of millions of dollars in tax breaks. But why? They cut jobs. They did the opposite of what you claimed they were going to do. Because it doesn't matter. The corporations are the ones that fund the politicians, so they're going to take everything from our kids, and they're going to hand it over to the corporations. Second example is from Pennsylvania. That same Republican governor said, oh, well, if you know, we've got to do fracking and give them incentive to do fracking in Pennsylvania, Otherwise, they'll go to uh, do fracking in another state. 
Uh, first of all, they're fracking in all the states anyway, okay? Second of all, in order to get the gas underneath Pennsylvania, they've got to be in Pennsylvania. Yep. They can't get your gas from another state. So it's such an obvious lie, because it isn't the point. The point isn't to create things that are better for Pennsylvania or Philly or anything like that. The point is, I got elected by taking a lot of contributions from, whether it was a fracking industry in that case or in this case, by the way, the reform movement, that where charter schools make more money, private schools yep. make more money, yep. the more you shut down public schools, uh, the happier those guys are, and they give a tremendous amount of contributions. And then lo and behold, we shut down a lot of public schools and had to privatize education where people made more money, huh? Really right. surprising how that turned out. And the out. argument that they'll always use when it comes to privatizing education is, well, look at these public schools, they're failing. Yeah, you know why they're failing? When you shut down 23 schools in the district and you force the students to go to other schools and you have overcrowded classrooms, yeah, it turns out that the education isn't as effective. And then they will use that argument and say, well, you see that, now they're failing even worse. We've got to shut more of them down and we're going to turn more of them private. Right? It's, it's really and then, and then the prisons will get overcrowded, and then they'll say, well, you see, that's why we've got to build more prisons, and we've got to turn more of them into private so that they could be more efficient, and then they'll have more incentive to shut more schools down and create even more prisons. And this is happening all across the country, and it's sick, and it's destroying opportunity for the next generation, which is what the American dream is supposed to be all about. So it goes another lonely day. Saving time, but you're miles away. Your flowers drowning in some bitter tea. The seeing lost opportunity. Find your mirror, go and look inside. You see the talent you're always hide. Don't go kid yourself, well, not today. The satisfaction's not far away. There is actually a news story that I wanted to share with you that. I think this is a, a relatively big deal. And, and that is that the, the private prison industry, here it is. This is uh, Arviva Shen posting it over on the Center for American Progress's blog, Think Progress. The headline is, Three States Dump Major Private Prison Company in One Month. And they talk about how Corrections Corporation of America, which is the largest and most powerful of all the private prison companies in the United States, quoting from the article, after extensive reports of abuse, neglect, and even fraud within their operation, lost four prison contracts in the past month. Idaho cut ties with the corporation on Wednesday, which had turned, this corporation had turned the state's largest prison into a violent hellhole inmates called Gladiator School. Earlier this year, still quoting from uh, Aviva Shen's reporting, earlier this year, CCA was caught understaffing the prison and using prison gangs to control the population. The company admitted to falsifying nearly 4,800 hours of staffing records to squeeze more money out of the state for non-existent security work. Shift logs at the prison showed the same security guards working for two to three days at a time without breaks. Last week, Texas closed down two CCA prisons, including one with a, his a history of suspicious prisoner deaths. One lawsuit alleges prison staff ignored an inmate's cries for medical assistance, forcing her to give birth in a prison toilet to a baby who died four days later. CCA was also booted out of Mississippi earlier this month. Boy, that takes a lot for, for Bobby Jindal to say, okay, enough already. 
after uh, multiple no wait a minute he's louisiana isn't he yeah who's the governor of mississippi that that's old haley barber country but i'm not sure who's the governor right now anyhow cca was also boot, booted from mississippi earlier this month after multiple deadly riots over poor food and sanitation lack of medical care mistreatment by guards mississippi's hiring another private prison company oh no to take over CCA's company. Yeah, you know, this privatization thing, it didn't work with this company, so we'll try it with another company. No, it just doesn't work. Every for-profit company is going to run your prison in a way that their CEO and their stockholders can skim money off the top. And instead of skimming money off the top, that state money that is going to the prisons should be used to rehabilitate people who are going to be sent back into the state population. We're not talking about dog kennels here, and even dog kennels or, or you know, uh, animal control. Pounds should be run by the state. They shouldn't be run by private corporations that are going to try and cut corners to make profits. The Geo Group, Mississippi terminated a contract with another private, major private prison company, the Geo Group, after it was found guilty of turning a juvenile facility into, quote, a cesspool of unconstitutional and inhuman acts, end quote. This is incredible. Now, you know, this is an industry, so they're going to be out there buying politicians and buying public opinion and, and lobbying. And, you know, national security, military services, and police services are things that should never have been outsourced in the first place. This is like the, the this is the evil side of Reaganomics. I mean, just plain evil, corrupting government. What doesn't always have a shape? Almost never does it have a name. Maybe has a pitchfork, maybe has a tail, but evil is alive and well. Might walk upright from out of the inferno Maybe coming horseback through deep snow It's ragged and fat, it's hungry as hell And evil is alive and well When you think of forced sterilizations, you might think of China or you might recall some sick eugenics experiments early in the 20th century. But then you might be shocked to hear, as I was, that the California Department of Corrections sterilized at least 148 female inmates from 2006 to 2010 according to the Center for Investigative Reporting. The tubal ligations occurred without state approval, and some of the women inmates say they were coerced into the procedure. Doctors got a total of 150 grand for the sterilizations. One of the prison OBGYNs said that the money paid to the doctors wasn't a huge amount compared to what you save in welfare, paying for these unwanted children as they procreated more. The doctors allegedly pressured the inmates who were repeat offenders or who had a lot of kids already. Some of the women say they were pressured into agreeing to the procedure while they were strapped in for their C-sections. They also say they weren't fully informed about the risks or the necessity for the tubal. This story reveals a barbaric practice that appears to violate the law and harkens back to a dark time in California and in other states where such things were commonplace behind bars. They shouldn't be happening in 21st century America. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
This program can only do what it does because of the members who support the show for as little as $5 a month. And as thanks for the support, members now get access to bonus content, including additional voicemails and clips that didn't fit in the big show, and additional stories and discussion topics from me. Plus, I've organized a full archive of the show, including a curated selection of my favorite past episodes, as well as a collection of my absolute favorite radio clips from all sorts of places. All that now available only to members. If you're already a member and want access to all this great content, drop me an email at j at bestoftheleft.com so I can get you set up. And if you're not yet a member, you can sign up now at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. The Center for Investigative Reporting has revealed that two prisons, state prisons in California, have been doing sterilizations of female inmates without consent. Now, this involves 148 tubal ligations between 2006 and 2010, and in layman's terms, it means that they tied these women's tubes without consent. Now, there were two issues that the Center for Investigative Reporting found. First of all, in California, if you are an OBGYN or a doctor in a prison who does sterilizations, you have to get consent not only from the inmate, but you also have to contact officials in Sacramento. In 148 uh, of these cases, they did not get consent from Sacramento, and in many of these cases, they would ask for consent from the women while they were giving birth or while they were on an operating table, heavily sedated. So obviously, it's a little difficult to give consent when you're under those conditions. Yeah, and um, I couldn't believe the years. I thought for sure that as after I read the headline, that the story was going to tell me, oh, they did it back from 1982 to 1986 or 62 to 68, et cetera. No, 2006 to 2010. Yeah, we. I mean, California and many other states in the U.S., I should note, uh, have a terrible history when it comes to forced sterilization, um, especially when it came to eugenics programs where the uh, doctors would purposely uh, sterilize men and women that were minorities or that were poor. And the whole reason why that they would do that is because they wanted to prevent them from reproducing and spreading their genes. Now. Some might make the argument that, hey, sterilizing these women is probably a good idea because some of them have five kids, they're in and out of prison, it's costing the state of California a tremendous amount of money, but when it comes to a permanent procedure like this, you need clear consent. You're messing with people's lives. If you want to make an argument that, hey, why don't you, uh, you know, have them consent to an IUD? Right, something that mm. is not permanent but allows you to prevent getting pregnant for up to five years. Then we can have a conversation about that. And again, even in that case, I think that you do need consent. But right, this listen. is, yeah. Yeah, it drives me crazy, right? That they have five kids. I'm going to be real, okay? Yeah. And you're in prison, you get impregnated again. What are you doing? What are you doing? And yes, sometimes they go on welfare. And by the way, it's not just prisoners, right? There's the Hasidic communities, I believe, in upstate New York. Where they like, well, we don't believe in working and we just believe in getting welfare and I had 12 kids. Well, that's pretty freaking convenient, right? So I know, it drives all of us crazy, right? But they're not animals, they're human beings. So we don't get to tell whether it's, you know, inmates in California or fundamentalist religious people in other states. We don't get to tell them, okay, or not even tell them and just tie up their tubes and say, you don't get to have kids anymore. It, we have to be decent human beings. And if you want to, like Anna said, you want to do education, you want to yes. say give them options, great. Nothing wrong with that, okay? You do it without consent and you force them into it, it's terrible. Or coerce them to do it. So I want to read you guys uh, a few examples of women that were imprisoned and they were 
pressured into getting sterilized. Some of them did refuse, even if they were heavily sedated, which I think is incredible. Uh, but others felt so pressured to do it that they actually went through with the sterilization. Uh, Christina Cordero was serving a two-year sentence, and she said the following. As soon as he found out that I have five kids, referring to the OBGYN uh, that was treating her, he suggested that I look into getting it done, referring to the sterilization. The closer I got to my due date, the more he talked about it. He made me feel like a bad mother if I didn't do it. Look, it's one thing to give somebody a pamphlet and say, look, these are your options. I got no problems with that. Do it, do it, do it, do it. When you're the doctor, come on, man, that's not your job. Now, like when you talk about, and by the way, it costs the state a ton of money. Uh, California paid doctors nearly $150,000, $147,460 to perform tubal ligations, right? Yes. Now, when you ask Dr. James Heinrich about it, he says, quote, over a 10-year period, that isn't a huge amount of money compared to what you save in welfare paying for these unwanted children as they procreated more. Uh, that was the quote for me that ended it. I was like, this guy doesn't give a damn about them. Like, oh, I'll spend the money because these people, they keep breeding and breeding. And I got to stop them from breeding. Look, That's not I, your job. I, 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 that enraged me as well, especially when it comes to justifying a very permanent thing, such as sterilization. But he does make a good point about the fact that unwanted pregnancies uh, and pregnancies for female inmates cost the state way more money than doing the sterilizations. Now, again, I don't agree with the sterilizations. I think the best way to do this is to educate the women, tell them about their birth control options, maybe t tell them as much as possible about IUD, so they do that, and that's, that's not a permanent uh, birth control method, but at least you're good, you're safe for at least five years and you can get your act together. But here are some numbers that I found interesting. From 2000 to 2010, about uh, 2,400 women gave birth while in prison in California. The cost was $2.7 million. Fewer than one in 10 were surgically sterilized. So $2.7 million is significant compared to $147,460. Right. So it's a fair point to make, but that still doesn't justify the sterilizations. They all wanted it done, he claims. Uh, if they come a year or two later saying somebody forced me to have this done, that's a lie. That's somebody looking for the state to give them a handout. Now, that handout language, this guy's a bad guy, man. He, everything he said is, is totally coded and is not very subtle at all. Like, uh, you know how they are. Now all they do is procreate, you know, and compared to what we're going to save in welfare, you know, these surgeries aren't that much at all. Let's force them into that. Oh, here they come again. After I did everybody a favor by cutting off their tubes, now they want a handout. Is that what they want? Mm -hmm. No, they wanted a real choice. And one final thing, you know, they keep making the justification for doing these sterilizations because in some case the women have had multiple kids, which means that they've had multiple C-sections. And it becomes riskier and riskier if you keep having kids after you've had multiple C-sections. But a lot of the women that talked to the Center for Investigative Reporting said, no, we had like one kid and we had one C-section and after that they wanted us to get sterilized to make sure that we wouldn't procreate again. Yeah. So I, I don't believe that justification at all and if you have to report to authorities in Sacramento and you refuse to do so, that means that you're trying to hide something. Is there a chance that doctors like Dr. James Heinrich might have made some assumptions about those women? Well, they're already in prison, etc., etc. So. I mean, I assume they're obviously going to be a burden to the state, and their kids will be a burden to the state for the rest of their lives. And the less kids these kind of undesirables have, the better off we all will be.
third Texas story of the day, a Texas county is being sued for running an alleged rape camp at a jail. Two female inmates have sued a Texas county jail and three former jailers as well for running what they said was a rape camp at county jail. And this has been obtained by Courthouse News Service. The inmates are known only by their initials. And uh, what they allege here is that there was a facility where a number of the jailers were repeatedly raping and humiliating female inmates at Live Oak County Jail over an extended period of time. This include forced sex acts. This include, included forced masturbation. This included um, any number of, of, of insane things. And in addition to the repeated sexual acts, a number of the female inmates were sexually harassed as well. As if it's not bad enough to be forced into having to have, you know, engage in sexual activity with any number of people. On top of it, there's kind of like an overall sexual harassment that's going on constantly. And the court documents allege that the guards would facilitate carnal impulses by withholding food and water from the inmates and physically abusing them until they were uh, ready to... I don't know what the term is. Submit. Per- submit, perform. I don't even know what, what the right phrase is. Uh, I, I, I don't – this is just a despicable story. We're still waiting on more of the facts. But why does the story make me feel like somewhere along the way we're going to hear questions asked about were these legitimate rapes or, or weren't they? Something about this story makes me feel like it's going to be questioned at some point. Well, now they're saying – that they weren't into it, but why did they wait so long, right? We always hear that many times when uh, victims of sexual assault f- do come forward. We hear, well, if it was true, they would have spoken up much sooner. And clearly those people understand nothing at all about sexual assault. Yeah, I hope it doesn't come to that. It seems like this is bigger than that. That's usually the type of thing to happen in a case where this is one person uh, claiming that one other person raped them. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that won't happen here, but I can guarantee you that this is happening in, in jails across the country. We've it, heard about it in other jails. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure it's rampant. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like this show. Can you be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious... I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com.
Today's activism segment comes to you as always in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project, where creator Katie Goodman and director Katie Klebusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Solitary Watch. The UN Human Rights Committee suggested more than two decades ago that prolonged isolation might amount to a violation of international human rights law. Yet, the US continues to cage approximately 80,000 people in solitary confinement. Many of these prisoners spend years at a time in solitary, often never seeing a glimpse of the outdoors. Children and inmates with mental illnesses are among those housed in the cruel, expensive, and counterproductive solitary wings of our nation's prisons. Solitary Watch is a web-based nonprofit committed to shining a light on the widespread use of solitary confinement. Their mission is to provide a centralized source for practicing attorneys, legal scholars, law enforcement, correction officers, policymakers, educators, advocates, people in prison, and their families, as well as the broader public. Their website, solitarywatch.com, has an impressive amount of information from an exhaustive list of facts and original reporting to background research and firsthand accounts from prisoners currently in solitary confinement. In addition to their action page, which links to petitions and events around the country organized by groups such as the ACLU, California Prison Focus, and the NYC Jails Action Coalition, you can download PowerPoints and infographics for use in your own campaigns and to broadcast across your networks. It's frustrating that there are so many issues which fall under the prison industrial complex heading. Solitary confinement is obviously just one of those, as we've already heard in today's show, but there seems to be a renewed focus on it because of the actions of prisoners themselves and the coordinated efforts of their tireless advocates that you're about to hear some of next. We're including some additional links on the topic in the segment notes and invite you to connect with us via social media where some good discussion is already happening. If you have personal stories you're interested in sharing, please do so on the Best of the Left Facebook page or by calling the listener hotline at 202-999-3991. Names can be withheld, of course. The importance of the movement to humanize the real people affected by this broken system should not be underestimated. Links to today's campaign will be in the show notes and all the usual places. You can visit the Best of the Left Facebook page for this and other activism opportunities and to share actions for possible use on the show. Could you help unfuck it up? And then say, are you really so fucking busy you can't take one fucking minute to help unfuck it up? Because I'm willing to pick one thing to help unfuck it up. Won't you join me? There's a really important hunger strike happening right now. Um, and it has been going on, actually, for a very long time. But the anniversary just uh, rolled around at Pelican Bay, in the Pelican Bay prison in California. Um... So July 1st marked the two-year anniversary of the start of the 2011 Pelican Bay hunger strike, protesting indefinite solitary confinement and SHU conditions. Um, Truthout has a really good report on it, and I'll link to it in the episode recap, but that's what I'm reading from. Uh, the hunger strikes, each lasting three weeks, ended after CDCR agreed to negotiations with hunger strike repre representatives over their demands. In late 2012, the CDCR implemented a pilot program to release those held in the SHU on gang charges. Prisoners and their advocates have denounced the program for keeping the most objectionable aspects of the old program 
and expanding qualifications for SHU replacement. Prisoners are calling for a hunger strike to begin on July 8th. Uh, vowing not to eat until their demands are met. And that obviously, that hunger strike has started again. Um, and if you go to Truthout, they have uh, the demands of the prisoners. And it's just, it's extraordinary to think that this has been going on for two years. And it involves so many prisoners. And uh, I mean, thousands of prisoners. And I've never once seen it covered on the news, no. um, which isn't a, you know, unusual. Usually the life of our prisoners we don't hear about anyways. Once they go to jail, they sort of become invisible right. to most Americans. Well, I have, um, like with hunger strikes, we've talked a lot about the Guantanamo hunger strikes. I have a Republican friend which is like the progressive version of I have a black friend, except uh, black people are better than Republicans. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I think one of the reasons it doesn't get covered is because no one in this country has empathy for prisoners. You just like sort of assume they're all murderers and rapists and terrible people who will never be, uh, redeemable. And, uh, you know, I remember when I posted the... Most deaf um, got himself like force fed to show that it was torture. The artist formerly known as Most Deaf. Formerly known as Most Deaf. Um, and, you know, this dude was like, well, here's a baby being force fed and, and the baby's fine. And it's like, right. The problem is the majority of prisoners at Guantanamo Bay have been proven to be innocent and they've already been held there for a fucking decade. And this is their last means of protest. And force feeding a child before they're aware of their surroundings is not the same as force feeding a fully grown aware adult human uh, being against their will by, I'm sure, very delicate Gitmo guards. Um, and so like and then the conversation kind of trailed off and it's like, well, you got to address this. You got to address the fact that like. They're protesting for a reason. It's not just about, oh, we're trying to help. We're trying to get them food. Yeah, I mean, literally, here are their demands. I'm going to read them right now. Let's see what outrageous demands the prisoners at Pelican Bay are demanding. A chopper at high noon? (laughs) Eliminate group punishments for individual rule violations. So get rid of collective punishment. Uh, That's in keeping with human rights. Uh laws all over the world that collective punishment is an immoral and unfair thing to abolish the debriefing policy and modify active slash inactive gang status criteria in unmarked bills (laughs) uh three comply with the recommendations of the u.s commission on safety and abuse in prisons regarding an end to long-term solitary confinement ah well that should be easy because solitary confinement is a form of torture it is torture surely we don't torture right we're not supposed to do that because the old white guys with slaves told us not to four provide adequate food okay whoa like food as in the thing that keeps you alive? Yeah. All right. Uh, and the final demand, expand and provide constructive programs and privileges for indefinite SHU inmates. Um, so give them something to do so their brains don't rot. Right. Uh, seems pretty reasonable. Especially if, again, and we've said this a lot on the show and people seem to forget this, 
the point of prison was supposedly rehabilitation, which is why every criminal isn't yes. in there for life or executed. Yes. And also the, the criteria for who is a gang member, who's not a gang member is so fucking arbitrary and scary when you hear exactly how they determine who's in a gang. You can have a book in your room that has a symbol on it, like on the cover. And the if a guard finds it and says, oh, this other gang uses a cross as their identifier and there's a cross on the cover of this book of your bible whatever gang <laughs> that means you're in the gang and you can li- you can't defend yourself once you're in jail you're just literally at the mercy of your overseers to maybe they'll believe you maybe they won't believe you but you it's not like a jury or anything like that that's the sound of the men working on the chain gang that's the sound of the men Working on the chain Gang All day long they're saying About 30,000 California prisoners have joined the hunger strike begun on Monday by inmates at the secure housing units at Pelican Bay. That's more than four times as many as joined Pelican Bay inmates in their first hunger strike in July of 2011, and two and a half times the number that struck in October of that year. So far, two-thirds of the state's prisons have been affected. The Pelican Bay inmates carry a certain moral authority in that they represent the most long-suffering, intensely persecuted group in the largest and most barbaric prison system in the world. The approximately 80,000 U.S. prison inmates held under solitary confinement. Pelican Bay is the site of more than 1,000 solitary confinement cells where prisoners are isolated from other human contact for at least 22 and a half hours a day. Around the state, about 4,500 people are held in special housing units, or shoes, with 6,000 more enduring some other form of solitary. Some of the shoe inmates have not seen the natural light of day for more than 20 years. The state calls the shoe inmates the worst of the worst in order to justify a punishment regime more barbaric in many respects than any in recorded history, a massive multi-billion dollar enterprise whose mission is to destroy the minds of men and women. Inmates are locked away for years on end for possession of literature or for mere suspicion of political militancy. By far the largest number of shoe inmates are accused of belonging to gangs and can only be released from solitary by accusing other inmates of gang affiliation, a process that is euphemistically called debriefing thus turning everyone into a potential snitch against everyone else. Prison is the ultimate surveillance regime, a place where the sense of self, of human agency, and of privacy is systematically crushed in the name of security. It is no coincidence that the world's prison superpower, the United States, which accounts for one out of every four incarcerated persons on the planet, 
is also engaged in spying on every other nation and population on earth. It is as if the United States is determined to surveil with the implicit threat to crush every expression of the human soul. Both the U.S. global surveillance and the American prison policies violate international law. The Center for Constitutional Rights has sued on behalf of the Pelican Bay inmates, citing the finding by the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture that any more than 15 days of solitary confinement violates international standards of human rights. California's inmates aren't waiting for the UN or the courts to come to their rescue. They've issued five core demands, with elimination of long-term solitary confinement at the top, and insist that the hunger strike will not end until California signs a legally binding agreement. The very concept of negotiation with inmates is anathema to the prison state, whose goal is to reduce human beings to objects with no rights whatsoever. The Pelican Bay inmates have concluded that if they are to have any chance to live, they must be prepared to die. Peter out in Chicago. I'm replying to the caller, Chris, from Colorado Springs. Hey, Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs, who made a lot of good points, but then he started to go into uh, how uh, rape jokes are uh, off-limits and we shouldn't say them. First, he summarizes the part of the counter-argument against him by literally saying, oh, free speech in this mocking and dismissive tone. Yeah, there's free speech. Common comedians can say what they want, but it's like, hey, what... What kind of message is you as an, as an artist, as a comedian, are you really trying to convey out there? And the last thing we want to do is be condoning rape culture or rape or sexual assault in any way at all. As if it, it's not relevant to this discussion, which it very much is. Because if you are assuming, uh, he's assuming that his own personal sensitivities are much more important than a comedian or any entertainer's right to perform without being bullied into silence by very sensitive people. I mean, how presumptuous is it that because you yourself are offended by a person's performance that that person should not perform that performance? What that person created is offensive to me and therefore should not exist. Well, why? Because you were offended? Well, so what? Nothing happens when you're offended. Uh, nobody says I was hospitalized for a week because I was just so offended. So what? What makes you think you are entitled to go through a world of six to seven billion other people without ever being offended? If you don't like a comedian's jokes, or if you don't like what they talk about, then don't support them. If you think rape jokes are offensive, don't tell them. I don't like most rape jokes myself. The caller makes the argument that it might make a rapist in the audience feel good about the rape. Like, oh, it's okay, this is actually something funny to do. Because although you might think you're making light of it, what you're really doing is if there's other men in that audience, and we know the, the statistics, right? Chances are, for any given comic, there's probably at least one or two rapists in that the joke, making fun of it, is actually making them feel better about what they did. Oh yeah, haha, ha, it's funny what I did, it's not as serious what I did. That, setting aside how ridiculous that is, I mean, 
uh, even the woman receiving all the disgusting online threats that he references agrees that we all agree that all that race is bad. Like we all think that nobody wants to be called a rapist. So that aside, how is that argument that it might make a rapist feel good any different from Wayne LaPierre's insistence that violent video games cause mass shootings? Some murderer might play a video game and say, hey, this is okay, this is entertainment, and they'll go out and perpetuate murder culture. I mean, that's, you get how asinine that argument is. That's exactly the same line of logic that he's using. Ultimately, this isn't about rape jokes in particular, but more generally about where do you draw the line uh, if rape jokes are too far. You know, I mean, the whole point of humor is to make the painful and chaotic things about our lives okay for just a little bit. It helps us deal with them. We're the only animal that laughs, and it's because we're the only one that tries to make sense of a world that doesn't make any sense. If we didn't have humor, I really believe we would literally go crazy and we would not survive. The world is too weird and painful and chaotic at times for a mammal with the proclivity to make sense of the world to survive without evolving the ability to laugh. Now, I'm a comedian, as you might have guessed. And my first stand-up set was about my own suicide attempt, and it killed. There was lots of laughter, applause breaks. People actually really loved it. There was a very positive response. Do you think that somebody in the audience is going to go out and kill themselves now? No, that would be ridiculous to believe that. Humor has the power to take our greatest fears and pains and make them okay. That is why it exists. Saying that something is too painful to be joked about is like saying there is a disease that is too serious to be treated. And uh, that's all I got. Thanks. And love the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. All right, rape jokes, let's do it. Uh, So so to start off, everything I'm about to say about comedy is based on this foundation, that good comedy is about targeting the powerful and defending the powerless or the victimized or the oppressed. And if you do the reverse of that, not only is it not going to be funny and you're going to create a really uncomfortable situation with most people, uh, you're also probably an asshole And if you have people who laugh at jokes like that, then you know that they are assholes. So that's my basis. First point beyond that, I I just want to make clear that freedom of speech literally has nothing to do with comedy. The idea of freedom of speech in America has to do with the government not being allowed to oppress people's speech. It has nothing to do with one person telling a bad joke and another person saying, that was a terrible joke, you should stop that. Uh, That's not silencing someone, that's not taking away their free speech, even a little bit. It's the the two issues are not connected. And then finally, you know, I've actually argued with listeners of mine defending the idea that there is no topic in comedy that should be off limits, including rape. The key point being, Assuming that the joke in question doesn't make the victim of rape also the victim of the joke as well. Rather than me go, go on, I'm going to let Lindy West, the feminist blogger in question, make this point herself. She wrote it out and does a better job than I would off the cuff. 
So in, in Lindy West's post in response to Daniel Tosh's, uh, you know, rape joke controversy on stage, he said that a, a female audience member who said something to him, you know, from the audience said that uh, wouldn't it be funny if a bunch of guys came in here and raped her right now, which isn't funny. So this is Lindy's post, you know, excerpts from her post on that subject. And she says, At this point, the conversation has devolved into two polarized camps, outraged feminists arguing that, quote, rape jokes are never funny, unquote, and defensive comics wailing about how the, quote, thought police is, quote, silencing them. Here's the problem. Everybody is wrong. I actually agree with Daniel Tosh's uh, sentiment in his shitty backpedaling tweet, quote, The point I was making before I was heckled is there are awful things in the world, but you can still make jokes about them. Hashtag dead babies, unquote. The world is full of terrible things, including rape, and it is okay to joke about them. But the best comics use their art to call bullshit on those terrible parts of life and make them better, not worse. The key, unless you want to be called a garbage-flavored dick on the internet by me and other humans with souls and brains is to be a responsible person when you construct your jokes. And then this is actually skipping ahead to her next article that followed up on this after she went on television and debated and then, uh, you know, thousands of people uh, basically threatened to uh, rape her or said that she should be killed and so on. I, I played a lot of those in a previous episode. And so the comedian she was debating is uh, Jim Norton, And in this part of her article, she is referring to how Jim Norton was arguing that comedians joke about different issues because it's a, quote, release of tension for people uncomfortable with those issues. It's, quote, catharsis. No subject should ever be, quote, off limits. And comedians shouldn't be, quote, silenced. And anyway, language doesn't affect culture. So how could rape jokes have an effect on actual rape? Rape is illegal. Everybody hates rape. Well, that's the fundamental disconnect between us. I believe that the way we speak about things and the type of media we consume profoundly influences how we think about the world. Let me be clear. I don't believe that previously non-raping audience members are going to take to the streets in a rape mob after hearing one rape joke. That's an absurd and insulting mischaracterization. But I do believe that comedy's current permissiveness around cavalier, cruel, victim-targeting rape jokes contributes to, that's contributes, not causes, a culture of young men who don't understand what it means to take this stuff seriously. Then at the, at the bottom, uh, a, a fellow blogger of hers commented on this post, and, and she says, Holy fucking shit, Lindy, I'm so sorry this is happening to you, referring to all of the rape threats that she had gotten. Luckily, I don't think the men who made those comments are aware of the vagina's location. So, if any of them actually tried to follow through on a rape threat, you'd have time to run away while they were all, Where's the sex hole? And then the following commenter said, ha ha ha, and that was a funny rape joke. And so, you know, of course, everyone has different tastes in comedy. You don't have to agree that that, what I just read, was actually a funny rape joke. But what you do have to agree on is that the victim of that joke was not the victim of rape, but rather the potential rapist. And in this power dynamic, the rapist is the powerful. The uh, rape victim, obviously, is the victim. So a rape joke can exist, it can be funny, 
as long as it's targeted at the right person. And so when it comes to constructing a rape joke, that's all a reasonable person can really ask for, I think. And now, if you don't mind me just going on a little longer, you know, this has all been talking about uh, rape jokes, but, a, a, you know, a person who thinks that no rape joke can ever be funny, someone in that frame of mind could also potentially think that it is impossible. Now, excuse me for not censoring myself because I don't see the point. Uh, a, a person in that mindset could similarly think that there is no joke that could ever possibly be funny in which a black person is unironically referred to as a nigger, the worst possible word you can say in the English American language. There is nothing worse you can call someone. How could it, it be conceivable that there could be a joke structured around calling a person that word and for it to actually be funny? Well, it just so happens that a regular on the show, Elon James White, host of This Week in Blackness, has such a joke. And uh, so I'll play it for you now. So, you know, think about it. Figure out why this isn't offensive. See if you can see who the victim is, who the target of the joke is. And I'll give you one hint. It's not the black guy he's talking to. I got yelled at recently for using the word nigger in a conversation. I, me, I was yelled at about this. And I am, hello, hello, Negro. I know how to use the word, okay? I use the word properly, people, come on. <laughs> I use it with hate. <laughs> okay, that's how I used it, okay? I know how to use it. I wasn't like, what up, nigga? <laughs> I was like, you fucking nigger. Like, that's how I said it, okay? I was serious when I said it. I had like a white hoodie on, it was up. I was serious. <laughs> When I said it, okay, I was by a tree, there was rope. I was serious when I said it. And I'll tell you why I said it. I have no problem telling you why. I was invited to an open bar party. Open bar party, okay? I invited two of my friends to the open bar party. One of my friends then steals two bottles of wine from the open... <laughs> bar party how doth one steal his free shit <laughs> seriously and he called me the next morning proud of himself he was like ha ha i stole two bottles of wine i was like ha ha you fucking nigger like that's what happened it rolled off my tongue like i had been practicing you know what i mean like like seriously and like i understand that some people take great offense it like offends their sensibilities i shouldn't be able to say that but you know what i said it Fuck you, I said it, that's just the way it is, okay? Fact is, black guys stealing completely and totally unnecessarily, I might call a nigger, I'm sorry if that upsets you, okay? White guys stealing completely, totally unnecessarily, I would call CEO. So there you go, I'll, I'll, I'll leave each of you to exercise your own critical thinking skills to parse out exactly you know, who is the, the target or the victim of that joke, the answer of which will you know, explain why that's not really an offensive joke, even though it may sound like it is. And then my last point on this is to all comedians, of course the, the one who called in included, it's time to stop saying these two things simultaneously. First of all, comedy is, is the cornerstone of humanity. It's how we deal with the world around us. The world is crazy and we have to laugh at it. And so uh, that's what comedy's for. It's a sacred institution and it doesn't affect how we see the world, act or think at all. You cannot have it both ways. I think that comedy is an incredibly important thing and I 
absolutely think that it changes the way we think about the world, feel about the world, and interact with the world, and that's why it's so important. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you're not already subscribed to get every single episode, please do that. You can subscribe on iTunes or the standard RSS feed or get yourself a smartphone app, including Stitcher or Best of Left has its own iPhone or Android app. Oh, even Windows 8 now. Who knew? It's brand new. Uh, Thanks especially to those who support the show by uh, becoming a member, making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained